Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Borrow Some Summertime, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Jim Lauderdale. Known as a respected songwriter's songwriter, Lauderdale is a versatile and highly prolific artist who is equally comfortable writing country, bluegrass, soul, or pop. His 1991 debut, Planet of Love, was packed with original songs that went on to be covered by George Strait, The Dixie Chicks, Gary Allen, Lucinda Williams, Mandy Barnett, and others. Since then, Lauderdale has recorded nearly 30 albums, including the Grammy-winning releases Lost in the Lonesome Pines and The Bluegrass Diaries. Patty Loveless has recorded five of his songs, including the top ten single, Halfway Down, and her duet with George Jones, You Don't Seem to Miss Me. Likewise, George Strait has covered well over a dozen Jim Lauderdale compositions, including the top five hits, We Really Shouldn't Be Doing This, What Do You Say to That, and I Gotta Get to You. Others who have recorded Jim songs include Elvis Costello, Dave Edmonds, Tracy Nelson, Shelby Lynn, Vince Gill, The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Blake Shelton, Gary Allen, Leanne Womack, and Solomon Burke. In addition to his Grammy wins, Jim took home both the Song of the Year and Artist of the Year honors at the 2002 Americana Music Association Awards. And in 2015, he was honored by the National Music Council, alongside Chris Christopherson and Charlie Pride, for his long-term contribution to America's musical culture and heritage. You know, I will never forget the night you and I went up to the Troubadour to see Jim Lauderdale play with Buddy Miller. Oh, man. Those guys are like... uh, You hear people who are that talented and and you don't know uh what to think (laughs) yeah i I couldn't decide if i wanted to go home that night and practice my guitar or destroy it (laughs) one of the two (laughs) those guys are are both of them are kind of heroes of mine as songwriters and and uh you know actually um my wife melanie and i we were in this songwriting contest Mm. called the chris austin songwriting contest at, at merle fest which is a big roots music festival in uh, North Carolina every year. And the judges of the songwriting contest that year uh, were Gillian Welch um, and Jim Lauderdale. Um, there was a couple others, but uh, I, I met Jim for the first time through that process. We came in second, by the way. Which was crazy because there were only two entries yeah, and, that but, year. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, I, we actually, Melanie and I met him, um, when we were there doing that whole, uh, Merle Fest thing and boy, you couldn't meet a nicer guy. Yeah. I mean, just seriously cool guy. And, and just has that kind of cachet. Like Jim's name seems to show up on a lot of like, yeah, I I just want to consider him like the cool crowd of music (laughs) and songwriting. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I gotta say in terms of, of being a nice guy, you know, um, when we talk to people for these interviews, sometimes, um, we wind up getting in these fantastic conversations that they can go for way longer than, than right. what the, the final version is. And I actually kind of feel compelled to say that, um, this interview has been edited for, for length because yeah. we had such a great conversation with Jim. And unfortunately, some of the stuff that we had to cut out was actually Jim wanting to make sure that he mentioned, uh, 
who engineered such right, and such right. or, or who played drums on such and such. And um, some of that just had to come out for content. But um, it, it's a reflection of, of his character is that yeah. he, he he's certainly not a spotlight hog. He wants to give credit to everybody that that was a part of his journey and a part of his um, career and um, in a really admirable way. Yeah, he's definitely a class guy. And you can tell uh, from his from his attempts to do that. And, well, you know, what's crazy about it is the fact that he even remembers who engineered this demo session or, <laughs> right, you know, who right. played what instrument on it. And I, th- I think it's because he actually values people in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I've run into him uh, several times over the years. And whenever I, you know, I introduce myself again, because I don't assume that he's going to remember uh, one guy who was in one uh, contest right. that he judged years ago. But uh, he always does. And he's always very gracious and, and a really uh, warm and, and, and genuine guy. So. Sadly, we had to cut out the part of the interview where he mentioned you, but yeah, unfortunately. But you know, he just kept going on and, and on about me, and we just didn't we didn't have time. <laughs> it's embarrassing. For it. it is. It is. Yeah. Well, should we get to the interview? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's do it. Jim, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I want to to start with a, a story and kind of work my way around to a question. Um, about 10 years ago, I, I wrote some songs with Tony Villanueva and Brian Hofelt from the Derailers, and I decided to, to demo those songs in the Derailers style, hoping that they might cut some of them on their next record. So uh, I went over to Marty Rifkin's studio in Santa Monica here, and I took the band's most recent album with me because I wanted to, to play a little of it for Marty and let him you know, hear what they sounded like and see what we're shooting for. So we put the CD in, and, and the first song was The Way to My Heart. And before we even get to the chorus, Marty turns to me and said, Jim Lauderdale must have written that song. <laughs> and uh, I actually didn't know. So I popped open the CD and I checked the liner notes. Sure enough, Jim Lauderdale and John Leventhal. The way to my heart is a winding road, but one I hope you take. Now, you have written country, bluegrass, soul, even some pop music, but there's this recognizable Jim Lauderdale stamp that folks who are in the know can spot from a mile away. So the question is, what is it that makes a Jim Lauderdale song unique? Well, um, that is uh, that question is a mystery wrapped inside a mystery wrapped inside a conundrum <laughs> or do i have that wrong do i have that backwards <laughs> conundrum inside a conundrum wrapped inside a but uh i you know what see i i'm not aware of that i've heard people say before like oh that sounds like something you wrote but i really can't I, in all honesty i don't have an awareness mm-hmm. of a particular style I even have. Interesting. I want to ask you about an album that you recently released, a double album called Soul Searching. And uh, Volume 1 is a tribute to Memphis, Volume 2 is a tribute to Nashville. Now, you've collaborated with everyone from Ralph Stanley to Elvis Costello, I mean, really embodying the wide range of roots music that's that's come to be called Americana. Now, what does that genre, the label Americana, what does that mean to you? Um, it it means American roots music to me, mm. and um, so that kind of encompasses roots rock, bluegrass, yeah. 
country, soul, R&B, blues, folk, you know, just any kind of American roots music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you grew up in, in Due West, South Carolina, with a father who was a minister and a, a mother who was an organist and, and choir director. Um, going back to those real early days, in what ways did the music of the church influence your uh, musical personality? My grandfather was also a minister, and we would sing psalms, huh. which were uh, in in that Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Some people sang psalms instead of hymns, right? And and um, I think part of uh, the the church stuff was ear training, but then mixed. I, I think. Kind of when I got into bluegrass, uh, I, th- I think a lot of those melodies kind of it, it seemed natural yeah. for me then right. to, to sing bluegrass, and um, so I think that was a big part of it. Just just uh, the ear training in general and the feeling sometimes that that you get from singing, you know observing folks around you or just the kind of feel hmm. that was going on, the kind of devotional feel and, yeah. and uh, uplifting, uh, you know, that that kind of played into it as well. Yeah. It's interesting to me to, to think that, you know, so much of, of church music is not about the soloist, it's about the group and the parts. Right, you know? that's right, and, yeah. And, and you're a person who... You know, obviously, you've written a lot of songs by yourself, um, but you've collaborated with a with a wide range of people, and you've recorded with a wide range of people. Um, and, and you know, it's interesting to think about that. Finding your part, finding your place within the group, hmm. is something that has clearly kind of carried on into your professional career. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I've been real fortunate to uh, have played with a lot of great musicians and gotten to write with several of my heroes and, and there's just so many great people that live here sure. yeah well, we've talked a bit about how gospel music influenced you but I, I'd love to hear about some of your other early influences besides that music of the church um, well my mom being also a high school chorus teacher I remember in Troutman North Carolina being in one of her classes one day I must have been about four or five maybe and um, her chorus sang, catch a falling star and put it in your pocket, save it for a rainy day, yeah. this kind of thing that was kind of in, in rounds. And then another song, You'll Never Walk Alone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and those just really stood out in my head. Hmm. And then I remember uh, an Andy Williams' song called Can't Get Used to Losing You. Hmm. Right. And those songs, when I hear them on the radio, they just really give me this electrical charge. And my folks also played, um, they had a few albums of Broadway show tunes. They had this anthology, and they had My Fair Lady. And, um, but then, you know, probably with a lot of folks, when the Beatles first came on Ed Sullivan, then that, just changed everything and so then from the 
the songs that I'd loved that that really excited me and just really kind of overpowered me, then I think that kind of tilled the soil for the Beals. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mind was already open and I was already kind of um, loving music. It's amazing how you can think back as a kid, and there's there's so much that just blurs into you know into the kind of fog of memory. But songs and albums just kind of stand out in stark relief. You know, you can just you can see those things. Oh, I remember that album. I remember that song. And some of them you maybe only heard a few times, but they you know they they make such an impression. Yes, and I think that carried on then through the years of. You know, when I first heard Flat and Scruggs for the first time, and the Stanley Brothers, and guys like Robert Johnson, and Howlin' Wolf, and Muddy Waters, and John Lee Hooker, and, you know, things like that, just really, George, all the country guys, Buck and George, and, uh, you know, it just hearing Graham Parsons for the first time, and and this kind of thing. Well, kind of looking ahead from those really early developmental years, I understand that after college, you headed to Nashville for the first time, and what were you hoping to accomplish there, and how did that experience play out for you? When I was in college, when I first started writing, I did my first demos, and uh, I did about three songs, and these songs were kind of rock-influenced. Right. And I naively thought that really soon I would be discovered and I would be touring and making albums. And right. um, and that didn't happen. And so I, I just kept writing more while I was in college and uh, doing as many solo gigs as possible. And I, I'd play some acoustic guitar, some banjo, some dobro, some harmonica. And it would be a real kind of an eclectic mix of things. You know, it'd be bluegrass and blues and rock and country. And um, so anyway, so I went to Nashville um, and I got offered a job at Opryland nice. to be in this country show. And so I thought, well, I'll go there and I want my goals are to hang out with George Jones and Roland White, mm-hmm. right. and I was real. I, I liked the people in my show and everything, but I was unhappy doing that. You know, right. I, I really wanted to just be doing gigs and writing, and, and uh, so. But it was a day job, and it got me to Nashville, and yeah. so I'd go to the Opry every weekend. And I got to see George there a couple of times, and I met him, but I was really nervous around him. And I met Bill Monroe, and I talked to him about, you know, maybe auditioning for him, but I was way out of my league. (laughs) My my bluegrass guitar playing wasn't that good, Mm. and... uh, and, But I did get to hang out with Roland White a lot. He really was really nice and at the end towards the the end of my five months there we did record an album together like a duet record and it right. was kind of crushing to me but i couldn't get a deal with it because i was an unknown and i wasn't on the festival circuit so they people just weren't interested and and you know later i understood that but at the time it was just you know it's just so disappointing so I met this guy from New Jersey, uh, John Messler, and he was down there just passing through town with a trio. And 
Roland let him sit in, and John and his band did a few Graham Parsons songs. So I immediately had this kinship with him, and I told him I was going to be moving to New York. Did he have any did he know of any gigs? And so he said, yeah, that he would he'd try to get me on at this place called O'Lunny's. And that was one of the, I guess it was like the first country bar up in New York. Oh, and so um, I, uh, it was as a solo act in between the bands. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the band sets. And so my very first night, there was Larry Campbell playing wow. steel and fiddle and telly with with a band. And um and so I, I got to play there a fair amount and um I was in various bands and um had had a bluegrass band too with Ollie O'Shea and Malcolm Rule and Larry Campbell called the West River Boys and mm-hmm. we'd play and I was in another bluegrass band called Charged Particles and uh-huh. um I worked um, in a department store when I first got up there, like in the in the stock room. And then um, I thought I would try to apply as a job as a messenger at Rolling Stone. Nice. And so, mm. sure enough, I, I got a job in the mail room and as a messenger at Rolling Stone. And yeah. that, that was kind of a, a day job. I, I understand that as part of your... Um job with Rolling Stone, you've got a, a, a pretty wild story about the time you almost met John Lennon. Yes. Part of my job was to deliver camera equipment that Annie Leibovitz was using. Oh, wow. And so um, one day I was dropping off some stuff there at the Dakota. Where John Lennon um, lived. Yeah. So I had, uh, and I'm, I, I can't remember now if I was delivering or dropping off stuff, but, but I had to stop by the Dakota office. But um, I was talking to the, a, a young guy there who was probably about my age, uh, and I said, are John and Yoko coming out? And he said, well, it could be 15 minutes or it could be an hour. He said, there's two limos out there. One's Gilda Radner's and one's John for Johnny Yoko. Huh. Wow. So I stood outside and I waited for a while and and I and it was getting kind of cold and and I was really tired, real real tired and I had a gig that night and I wanted to go home and lay down for a few minutes. After a while I thought, well look, what am I doing? Am I going to stand around here like this like this geek over here <laughs> waiting for an autograph? And I just thought, look, I, you know, it's so close. I'm I know I'm going to run into to John sometime. I'll meet him. I'll get to meet him. So I went home and then I went to the gig and then this guy said, hey man, John Lennon's been shocked. Mm. You know, and so then I went home and then turned on the news and then there was that guy that I'd seen standing there and he had an album earlier. So the the geek that you didn't want to be like was Mark David Chapman. Right, right. Wow. So you you eventually relocated from New York to Los Angeles um, around 1986. Um, So what prompted that move? Well, I got in this show where I played guitar and had some dialogue, and uh, it was kind of a country-ish rock musical called Pump Boys and Dinettes. Oh, yeah. So I got this offer to go out to L.A. with Pump Boys and Dinettes, and I thought, well... 
you know, I knew the people in it, and I really liked them. And I thought, look, here's my plan. I'll go out to L.A. for about five months. I'll do the show. And so I went out there, and and things just all of a sudden started falling into place. And this lady uh, that I'd met, uh, that I invited to see Pump Boys, and then she said she'd try to book me, some clubs was this lady named Candy Kane. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and and she was also, also had this country band going. And so at that time, too, there was the Palomino Club. Right. Now, Dwight Yoakam had broken through, and I had stopped by a sound check because I'd read about Dwight. Right. And, and I went by, and, and I couldn't go to the show because we had a show that night. But I went to the... The, the stage and I introduced myself to his sound check and I said I've got a tape I want to give you and he said give it to this guy over here my producer hmm. guitar player and it was Pete Anderson so right. I gave him this this uh, demo of, of a few songs and then I went out to this Thai restaurant and there was Pete Anderson and oh, he well. recognized he recognized me and he said you're the guy that, that wrote that song Stay Out of My Arms I really like it and oh, I was like cool. wow you know, and so things were just kind of easier. Candy booked a gig for me at the club lingerie, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I had Dwight's rhythm section and um, a, a steel player named Leo LeBlanc, and oh, yeah. uh, who'd been on John Prime's stuff, and Billy Brimner, <clears throat> and there at my first gig was Pete and Dwight. Wow, and um, <laughs> uh, and and a guy who became my manager named John Chamboti. Sadly, he passed away a few years ago, mm-hmm. but he was a huge influence on me and, yeah. and help and like a, a family father figure. Well, it was such a you know the the thing that that I think people maybe forget is you know there, there's not the kind of country scene in L.A. now that there was in the late eighties when you had guys like Dwight Yoakam and, and Rosie Flores and Lucinda Williams was out here and James Entveld and the lonesome strangers and, and you and, and, you know, those kind of this whole scene that was, was happening. And, and out of that, uh, in 1988, you landed to deal with, um, Epic records and you wound up making this album with, with Pete Anderson, who you mentioned. And the first single that came out was stay out of my arms, uh, you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, in what ways did just living in California kind of shape your songwriting sensibilities? For the first time, it seemed like I was in the right place at the right time. It, huh. it, um, uh, the, you know, I really didn't want to go to L.A., you know, and I, it's like I said, I was just going to go out there for a brief period and get enough money and get out for some reason. I thought, <laughs> right. I don't want to go to L.A. I'm not going to like it. But then when I got out there, it, it was that club scene was just really happening. And those people you're mentioning, and, and Chris Gaffney, um, right. uh, you know, all these, Jan Brown, you know, um, George Karen Tobin, George Highfield, yeah. I mean, it was just... Ronnie Mack had this. Oh yeah, uh, it was called Ronnie Mack's Barn Dance sure. in Palomino, and he was kind of the ringleader at that time. And Billy Block, who was um, who we sadly lost last year, yeah, um, you know, was out there, and and he started doing 
things too, you know, and uh, and so it was just such a, a rich, fertile time musically. Yeah, and there was just this great scene, and it was really. I felt like we were really rooting for each other. You know, right. I, I really didn't feel like it was a competitive thing. Right. We felt like, well, we're, you know, we might not be able to make it in Nashville, but we're mm. going to do our own thing. Yeah. And also the weather was just so great. And, <laughs> um, I started going out to get to 29 Palms and Joshua Tree and Yucca Valley and writing really, that became a real kind of energy vortex for me to go mm. out there and write. Yeah. And I was living up in Beechwood Canyon, uh, up up at the top of the hill, and so I could this this little place I had this little kind of studio apartment in the bottom of this old house. Um, it was that was also just a great place to write. And looking out of my window, I'd look down over the whole canyon, and you could see downtown, you know, and you could see it, and, and at night, the lights down there, and mm. it was just real conducive to writing. Right. And um, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, uh, Buck Owens, I remember seeing him do tight by the tail uh, on the... Uh, Dean Martin show when I was a huh. kid and there were certain and, and that really stood out and but then when I got out there I just really kind of soaked in more buck than yeah, I had before right. and it had been one of my career and life highlights when buck invited me to sing harmony with him wow it was so great but I was just petrified you know <laughs> but there was just something the tones of our voices i think in some ways uh we have a similar tone maybe right. mm. and at the same time pete anderson was taking some time off from dwight and so he he played in my band and right. um, and then buddy moved down buddy miller mm. um uh, he had given up music for a while, and he was living in San Francisco, and he uh, contacted me and said, um, I'm, I'm getting back into guitar playing, and if you ever need a guitar player, let me know. And yeah. so I, you know, without hesitation, <laughs> hired Buddy, for, and, and he moved down with Julie. But I always felt funny about Buddy being my guitar player, harmony singer, and that, that lasted for huh. several years, but he was so great. You yeah, know I mean? Right. He, when we were in New York, he was like the, the king of the scene. Right. But then it just, you know, in a matter of time, though, Buddy really came into his own and just never looked back. Yeah, right. He's been, you know, doing so great. Well, that, that first single that you released on Epic, uh, it only went to number 86 on the Billboard country singles chart the second release lucky 13 you know didn't chart and ultimately i know the label didn't even wind up releasing the record but you you did find 
your your right opportunity and got another record deal with the reprise label and released the highly acclaimed planet of love album in late 1991 um i know that record was produced by rodney crowell and and john leventhal and of course you and john had had some history back to new york but how did uh, rodney crowell kind of get involved in that and and sort of bring that first the the true debut record kind of coming to life the the epic thing was so disappointing so my my attorney john mason was um said well look i've i've uh, talk to uh, Reprise, and um, uh, they're interested. And um, Rodney Crowell, uh, I think we can line that up. So that, I was thrilled because Rodney was a hero, and sure. I was first aware of him from you know looking at the writers' credits on Emmy Lou's records, and uh, and then also getting his first solo album when I was still in college and so that was like a dream and John and I at start Leventhal and I started writing um, kind of at the tail end of when I was making the epic record right and um, I gave Rodney kind of all of the stuff I had and then John said listen it really mean a lot to me and could you do me a favor like if I could just like co-produce like one song hmm, on the record right. would be great and so I, I thought well sure you know so I mentioned this to Rodney he had a, somebody else in mind to help him because he was so busy to produce it and I said well look is it could could we could my friend John Leventhal who produced these demos and I co-wrote the songs with could he help and so Rodney without hesitation said, well, yeah, I, I really love these these demos. Huh. And th that Planet of Love album includes one of your signature songs, The King of Broken Hearts. The King of Broken Hearts doesn't ask much from his friends And he has quite a few of them They know he will understand that's just the way it goes. The king what was the inspiration for that one? Well, I was still trying to get a, a deal going, I guess. And um, I was reading a book by Sid Griffin, who had been in a, a group called The Long Riders, and it was a biography of Graham Parsons. Huh. Right. And there was a story of how Graham had a party one time in Hollywood and he was playing George Jones's records for people who hadn't heard him and he started crying and he said that's the king of broken hearts and so it was one of those uh, chill up the back of my spine moments right. and this melody just started coming out mm. and then I went out to uh, Joshua Tree a few nights later and there was a full moon and I, I went and drove out to Cap Rock yeah. Where Graham, where they tried to cremate Graham. <laughs> right. And I was out just looking at the rock and the moon, and I finished it out there. Yeah. And, um, and because that record sadly had a also kind of a bad luck time over there, I mean, mm -hmm. there was so much enthusiasm when I turned the record in, but then they wanted to test market 
one of the guys from the L.A. office from Reprise wanted to test market one of the songs as a pop single. Huh. And so it was it was kind of confusing, and I said, well, can't we just go ahead and release this record and release um, this song, Where the Sidewalk Ends, as my first single? I kind of had envisioned Where the Sidewalk Ends as the first single, King of Broken Hearts as the second single, and then Planet of Love as the third single. Right. And, and they said, no, we can't do it like that. That's, hmm. it, they, they, it has to... If we're gonna, if it, it can't kind of cross over, you know, it, it has to go as a pop single first. Now, my my uh, publisher at the time, so it seemed like a great opportunity in a lot of ways, even though I was confused about it. Right. But my my publisher at the time had taken a big chance on me uh, with uh, because my my deal when he signed me when my uh, deal with Epic was kind of deteriorating but and his name is Brownlee Ferguson and he said you know what this is never going to work as a pop single because you're you are Warner Brothers and Reprise has artists like Prince and Madonna (laughs) do you think do you think how how do you think (laughs) this is going to stack up next to them and I just said well but that's what that's what they want to do how can I say no and and Pete Anderson also <laughs> told me, even though, uh, you know, we weren't working together at the time, he he really, you know, was giving me some advice where, like, I needed to just go into the office and, you know, just kind of be really forceful about things. Right. And it, that just wasn't my nature. I was too kind of shy and, and too right. kind of wimpy to do that, unfortunately. And uh, so anyway, so... That record, but the good thing about that that came out of that was is that I got a call from uh, my publisher that said we've got great news. Yesterday, Tony Brown recorded "Where the Sidewalk Ends," which was a song I wrote with John Leventhal, and "King of Broken Hearts" for this movie that George Strait is doing called uh, "Pure Country." Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you know it was it was really in that exact same era when that record was coming out that you began getting your songs noticed by other artists. And, and in 1991, Vince Gill recorded Sparkle, Kelly Willis recorded Not Afraid of the Dark, Shelby Lynn cut Stop Me. But but really that big breakthrough came when, when George Strait covered a couple songs from that Planet of Love record. Where the sidewalk ends and the road begins We said goodbye on a cold dark night I mean, those songs appeared on the soundtrack to that pure country film, which sold like six million copies and is George Strait's still his most successful album to date. And so in in what ways did having other artists latch onto your songs, particularly a guy like George Strait, in what ways did that kind of change the game for you? Well, it's kind of also for the first time I... I've been having so many defeats in right. my career as uh, as I was an aspiring recording artist. So many rejections and disappointments um, that that was kind of my first taste of something good 
happening right. like that with with my recording career, you know, with, well with with my writing. And um, I had never thought about writing, or, or I really hadn't thought about my songs getting covered by other people at all. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to. My goal was to to have my own stuff uh, uh, happen. But right. um, so that that was just. That was just so great. And then also, too, I was getting kind of used to being thought of as left of center or too left huh. of center. Right. That was right. the, the response that Blue Water Music, my publisher, was getting at first from people was like, man, it's, it's either too country or it's too weird or it's too out there. Right. You know? And so... When that started happening, when 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 I got those two cuts, mm. and through the years when I'd see Tony Brown out of places like it, and I'd be doing it in the round or something, and Tony would be out there, I'd thank him, you know, because mm. that really he he brought those songs to George, and then I also thank George a lot because that kept me going. And you were having success getting a lot of these album cuts with mainstream country artists, but you started having some serious hits in 1995 when Mark Chestnut took Gonna Get a Life to number one and Patti Loveless had a top ten with Halfway Down. Halfway down, just to get Around this time that you moved to Nashville from Los Angeles, what kept you from making that move earlier? Well, that's a good question. I uh, I felt like when I when I had gone there in 1979, because things didn't turn out like I thought they would. You know, when I thought I'd get a record deal soon and and or a publishing deal. And I just, I, I felt like I, if I had moved to Nashville and, and it didn't happen for me, it would just totally destroy me. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Yeah. And so when I started um, uh, doing this deal with Blue Water, um, I did some demos uh, out in L.A. I did one batch out of Buddy Miller's place. But then... Um, uh, my song plugger at the time, a lady named Pat McMurray, um, suggested going to Nashville that I try out this studio called uh, Moondog Studios. Mm, right. And it was, and um, it, at the time, the, the guys running it were uh, Gary Talent and Bucky Baxter. And some other people. Eventually, right. Gary. It, it ended up just being Gary's studio, and so it was kind of a magical experience for me working there. Yeah. So I started doing a ton of demos there. Yeah. And a lot of times I wouldn't even have anything prepared, hmm. and I would have to call somebody like Frank Dykus and I, who I, I co-wrote the song "Gonna Get a Life." Uh, that Mark Chestnut did. Right. Um, sometimes I'd call Frank and I'd go, Frank, I have a session coming up. Do you have anything? <laughs> right, and right. he would he would give me lyrics over the phone. Or sometimes Frank would call me 
and say, I've got a smash or I've got a monster here. (laughs) And so he would read me these lyrics, and while he was reading them, then a melody would come to me, and I'd say, okay, wait, hold on. That's great. And I'd hum it into a tape player, and I'd go, all right, now give me the verse. (laughs) Right, right. And so that would happen a lot with Frank. We just had this thing. Sure. And, um, And so... So that kind of helped me get my co-producing chops mm, yeah. by working in there. And then eventually some of this stuff turned into albums. Right. Well, after the, the Pure Country soundtrack, George Strait went on to record you know more than a dozen of your songs, including hits like We Really Shouldn't Be Doing This, um, What Do You Say to That, Don't Make Me Come Over There and Love You, Twang, I Gotta Get to You. Um Obviously, there's this sort of kindred spirit happening between you and George Strait because he is an artist who carries the banner for that kind of traditional country music, which is also very important to you. And you've sort of expressed that in interesting ways. And your your Whisper album from 1998 includes a couple of songs that you wrote with Harlan Howard, who, of course, is known for legendary songs such as I Fall to Pieces and Tiger by the Tail, Heartaches by the Number, and so many others. And I know you wrote other songs with legendary writers like Melba Montgomery. Um, why is it important for you to seek out... Um, people like that who came before to seek out kind of uh, heroes and, and what have you learned about songwriting from, from people like Harlan? Well, that's a good question. And Well, I think um, I, I like to work with people who are way out of my league <laughs> um, and who are, are masters at what they've done. And right. I just look up to and respect so much. And when I did, um, when I got this record with RCA, deal with BNA slash RCA, I had um, I had gone through uh, Epic and Reprise, and then I did a couple of uh, records on Atlantic. But um, uh, when I got the the deal with RCA, they they very kindly. song from that whisper album is hole in my head which you wrote with buddy miller which the dixie chicks covered on their fly album hole in my head, hole in 
that was another huge record, 10 million copies in the U.S. So by the end of the 90s, you've, you've got this reputation as a roots music guy, and yet at the same time you're having success with like the biggest, most commercial mainstream country acts around. Was there any tension in that dichotomy for you? Um, not for me, but there probably was maybe, I guess, as far as my records, as far as then me getting accepted or get you know right. moving up you know but but the good part is about that is that it forces me to go beyond what I think I could do right. and my limits and my endurance and all that stuff and so each record pretty much wipes me out in some ways but it's <laughs> but I I don't know you know, if I would have had success as a recording artist on the Epic record, and then I really thought it would happen on the Planet of Love record, and but because it didn't, it just it really made me. You know, I mean, if 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 I would have had a lot of success, I might have just kind of sat back yeah, and yeah. and you know maybe made some a lot of dough for a while and you know not worried so much about <laughs> touring or whatever right. and, and but but this really has made me to this day like with the, the soul uh searching record yeah, right. i mean if that you know it's i'm going places i haven't gone right musically and i really love that you know yeah. and, and at the end of the day it, of course, I, you know, I really want my music heard sure. as much as possible. And yeah, I think yeah. anybody wouldn't be telling the truth if they yeah, yeah. said they didn't care. I do right. care. Yeah, yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, even if, if my records aren't successful commercially, then it, I've got the songs, though. Right, the yeah, songs right. are there. And that's, you know, yeah, that means a lot to me that that, that has happened. Um, in 1999, you returned to your Carolina roots with "I Feel Like Singing Today," um, which was your first duet album with bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley and his band, the Clinch Mountain Boys. And and you guys earned a Grammy nomination for that record. And and it's an album that included some fantastic original songs, including uh, "I Will Wait for You." I will wait for you in the morning. I will wait for you in the dawn. I will wait for you, my darling. That's one that you co-wrote with Robert Hunter, who's best known as the lyricist for classic Grateful Dead songs like Friend of the Devil and Casey Jones and, and Truckin' and many more. Um, and, and you and Robert have gone on to collaborate pretty extensively, including at least four albums I'm aware of that you've released that are entirely songs that you've written with Robert. Um, talk about how you guys kind of hooked up and, and why you work together so effectively. Uh, Ralph agreed to do an album with me. Uh, and I wanted to write a bunch of the record and then do some Stanley Brothers songs. Mm. And uh, and I thought, gosh, it would be a dream come to true, an incredible thing if I could write with Robert Hunter, one of yeah, my favorite sure. writers. And so um, I, I asked this guy, Rob Bleetstein, who lives out uh, in Northern California, how I could get a hold of Robert. And so he... 
Um, uh, I said, look, I don't do the internet yet. Right. I don't know how <laughs> to do it, <laughs> right. but we, we, uh, communicated and, um, I, I did have a fax machine, so he faxed me some lyrics mm. and it was this, uh, thing called joy, joy, joy. And so I, I did a demo. I mean, I just did a cassette with a guitar vocal and I overnighted it to him and he sent it back and he just made, you know, suggested some minor things. And so, uh, and then he had this other song, I will wait for you. Mm. And so I, um, when I was doing the record with Ralph, I played them both for him and he liked them. And so, um, then Robert, uh, wanted to come to Nashville for a while. He he hadn't been there uh, ex- except for one time, I believe, in his life. So he came and stayed for a few months. So I'd go over, and um, we would just start talking, and then I'd get a melody, and I'd leave it with him. Hmm. And then when I'd go back either the next day or if I had some gigs and was gone a few days, I'd come back and he'd have a lyric finished. And so we got about 33 or so songs. So several years went by and then I did my other record with Ralph um, called Lost in Lonesome Times and he'd sent me a few more lyrics and um, I recorded those and and then I did this record called Headed for the Hills, which I finally uh, went through those songs that we wrote in Nashville and uh, whittled them down to 13. Uh-huh. And it was mostly an acoustic album. And right. Gil, I asked him, I, you know, I got his uh, input on people he'd like to use, and Bucky Baxter had played on the demos. and So he was on it and um, playing Steel. And, right. Uh, he wanted Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings and the Lou, yeah. Buddy, Tim O'Brien and Daryl Scott, right. and um, uh, Byron House is playing bass, and um, uh, and then uh, we hadn't written together in several years, and I had just started writing this record. Uh, that became Honey Songs right. with James Burton and Al Perkins. And I visited him for the first time out in San in, in California, Northern right. California. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and started writing stuff again. Yeah. And so I put some of the those, then, and, and out of that collaborative period uh, came Patchwork River. And then uh, after that, we did two bluegrass records. And then after that, um, I did a record with the North Mississippi All-Stars and Spooner Oldham and David Hood uh, of our stuff called Black Roses. And and at the same day, I released a a solo acoustic album of our stuff. So we've got six. Six records we've written about a hundred songs. Wow, man! I tell you, just just hearing all this stuff, Jim. I mean, you you move deeper into the two thousands. Your output could be described as somewhere between prolific and insane. There's so much (laughs) stuff. I mean, you you made that second record with Ralph Stanley, "Lost in the Lonesome Pines," which got you your first Grammy. 
You followed that up with a total change of direction, collaborating with the jam band Donna the Buffalo on the Wait Till Spring oh, yeah, album. Yeah. You got your second yeah. Grammy four albums later with the Bluegrass Diaries. And then you followed it up with, with, like you said, Honey Songs, that collaboration with the musicians that you call the dream players, James Burton, Glenn D. Harden, Ron Tutt from Elvis Presley's band. And, you know, it's not uncommon for you to release two or three albums within a year's time. And now you've released a total of somewhere around like 27 albums. And this might be a ridiculous question, <laughs> given your output. Okay. But have you ever hit a creative dry spell as a songwriter? Um, you know, there was a period, I, th I think maybe the longest was back in L.A., and um, uh, it was when things were still going on at um, the Palomino, and it was after, actually, it was before, well, now that I think about it, it might not have been as dry as I thought, because <laughs> I think, I, I was, well, I was writing with John Leventhal, and but and it was before Planet of Love came out, but I remember maybe it, it seemed like a dry period to me, but I remember writing um, the song Divide and Conquer mm. and which which came out later on a record called Pretty Close to the Truth. Right. And um So you were only getting out like a song a day. <laughs> no, no. And I don't you know, I I believe me, there's times when kind of micromanaging things uh, for my career and things like that take up a lot of time. Yeah, and that's sure. why music, when it, it I, I enjoy, I, I treasure the time when I can just kind of yeah. shut things off for a few hours and just it's just music well yeah, yeah you, you've used and, the word magical a couple times and that seems like that's the magic time yes that's right that's yeah. right well paul yeah. mentioned elvis presley's band a moment ago but you collaborated with the other elvis elvis costello yeah. on his national ransom album from 2010 um and that record included a song that the two of you wrote together called i lost you i lost you about how that came together well he um i started seeing elvis at gigs then i got a somehow he got my maybe i gave him my number or something but he called me and was wondering if i'd uh sing harmonies with him at merle fest oh, he was cool. gonna do a set so that was a huge thrill yeah. to get to sing harmonies i i had loved elvis costello since I first read a, a um, interview with him, and I, you know, at first I didn't know who he was, and and uh, in this interview at the in kind of in italics, I was talking about how that George Jones and Graham Parsons were two of his favorites, and so boom, it was like, <laughs> okay, I like this guy, right, I like right. him, and then even though his style was so different. And then I got his almost blue album, and I started just getting all of his albums. Right. And so he, you know, was just 
as, as someone I hold in such high regard as an sure, artist. Yeah. And, and uh, so then after that, a few months later, he uh, called and said he was going to be doing this acoustic record, um, and that became The Secret Profane and the Sugar Cane. Right. Uh, and, and so that was a great experience, and T-Bone Burnett uh, produced that. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, then, and then we toured with it. And so it was almost the end of a U.S. leg of that tour, and we were in we were in Austin, and uh, we were getting ready to get on the, our buses. And I said, um, I said, hey, this this kind of Leuven Brothers type thing just came to me called I Lost You. And he said, well, put it on, put it on something, send it to me, you know, on the other bus. So <laughs> I did, and um, then by the time we got to Dallas, he had it done. Nice. Well. <laughs> and so we did it that night. And then Man. this other one came. I had this other melody that I had actually started for the Dream Players. And, it, and I haven't finished it yet. I've got another album of stuff with uh, James and Al. Right. A few of the songs, I hadn't finished the lyrics, and I hadn't finished the, that track, and I sent him. And then he wrote this uh, song called Poor Borrowed Dress. And then by the time we got to Tulsa, that evening he had finished that and so we right. sang that at that song so he he recorded that on like an ep that went along with that national ransom record right cool. well jim before we let you go i mean we've talked about so many songs and we've talked about songs that have been number ones and have been on bazillion selling albums but i'm curious is there a song of yours that you've always thought should have been a hit but hasn't ever gotten the attention that you think it probably deserves um, yes. Are, are there a couple there dozen of them? Several. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Well, well, going back to, I really thought that King of Broken Hearts would have been a single for me yeah. and would have kind of broken things open. Yeah. But, but going back to that song, Planet of Love, hmm. that John Leventhal and I wrote, that was so different, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. That I really thought if if that would have been on country radio back then, that would have really done something. Yeah. And and now with the the Soul Searching record, I mean, there are some songs I feel like if if things were different with radio, mm. that that you know, and if this was a different day and age, or if there were other artists out there doing you know that kind of stuff yeah then i then with other people as well you yeah. know I, I could have hits with um so yeah there's a bunch of them yeah yeah well i mean there are so many great jim lauderdale songs and and so many that we've heard and so many that we look forward to hearing in the future and at the rate that you're putting out records i know we're going to get to hear a lot of more great stuff and so we just want to thank you for spending uh, time with us today and and doing this. It's really been great chatting with you. Yeah, y'all too. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list 
so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. 